0: And this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi, listeners. This is Datacast, where I hold long-form and in-depth conversation with data practitioners and researchers to unpack the narrative journeys to the career. My guest today is Jeremiah Lowen, the founder and CEO of Prefect, a data flow automation company. Before starting Prefect, Jeremiah gained extensive experience in all aspects of the modern data stack as a director of risk management, machine learning researcher, and data scientist at a number of institutional investment firms. Today, he lives with his wife and two sons in Washington DC. So Jeremiah, uh, so glad to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm glad to be here. By way of introduction, uh, I believe that you complete simultaneous graduate and undergrad degrees at Harvard in statistics and economics. So can you share briefly about your academic interest in starting econ, as well as your overall college experience?
1: Yeah, absolutely. If you look back at my career, I think it's easy to draw a line through everything, including academia and my early career and a lot of the decisions I made, and, I, and they sort of seem to lead to this point very naturally. But, but the truth is that a lot of those points, I think we might talk about this this afternoon, at a lot of those points, I was sort of almost greedily in the data sense, pursuing something that was of great interest to me. When I was at Harvard, that was very much the case. I studied economic because frankly, I didn't know what to study and all my roommates seemed to be, sorry, uh, great, I'll study economics. But then what happens is I discovered econometrics and was fascinated by this tool that could all of a sudden take... Ah, uh, data, which at the time I just you know thought of as just a bunch of numbers, and extract insight and start to tell stories about it and meaning and statistics. I began to pursue for the same reason. I was fascinated by the ability to discover meaning in what looked like uh, noise, a pile of garbage, just a bunch of numbers. And most of my academic career was characterized by an an obsession, frankly, with how two statistical distributions interact. In in my case, it was financial assets, stock market. I was fascinated by the declaration in most of my undergraduate classes that stock market is a great example of a normal distribution. And of course, the declaration in all of the books I was reading, in particular, one book, uh, The Misbehavior of Markets by Mandelbrot, which said that stock markets are absolutely not normally distributed. And uh, it was trying to understand why why are these two statements compatible? How can I parse this out that I really launched this academic career and concern that led to all of this work and my thesis and fascination that's sort of stayed with me for many years now?
0: Can you tell me a bit about your thesis, if I'm correct? You were like working on models for multivariate dependence. So,
1: yeah, yeah my, my thesis was on a, on a class of models called the copula model, which is sort of a parameterized you could think of it as a glorified correlation function. So I think popularly, especially among data scientists we talk about correlation, these are correlation of zero, they're independent, correlation of one, they're perfectly dependent, one variable characterizes the other. And that's a very, very, very simple description of the way that two things can interact. In the context of the stock market, for example, two stocks might not be particularly correlated But as you may have heard, when stocks go up, they take the escalator. And when they go down, they take the elevator, right? The correlations tend towards one when markets are crashing. And so that is a a description of behavior that's not really compatible with simple linear correlation. I can't have two things that are mostly uncorrelated and then extremely correlated when they move like sharply downward together. And so these copular functions are a way of characterizing and describing that dependent structure. And my thesis was on a way of, building empirical copulas from data that you didn't necessarily know in advance what model you wanted to fit to them. This turned out to be very relevant in my career when I I joined a large hedge fund called King Street Capital, which among other things had a large derivatives portfolio post-financial crisis. And pricing of these credit derivatives was largely based on copula modeling. And uh, the reason is, is because you have these instruments that are very sensitive to the default of underlying credits uh, within them. And much of the time when one company is going bankrupt, other companies are much more likely to go bankrupt because it implies something about the world. But when companies are not going bankrupt, they tend to sort of be independent. And so in order to price these structures, this knowledge became very helpful. And it was sort of a funny application of something that until then had been very much theoretical for me.
0: Yeah, thanks for sharing the details of your thesis and that kind of pretty well. So i curious to hear about your four years working at King Street, right? So right after to Harvard, you joined King Street Capital and really focused on market risk management. And I'm just curious, like, why did you decide to go into risk management for your first job? And also, you mentioned a bit about, like, the application of your work in there. Is there any other projects you also work on during your time there, uh, especially given, you know, that period specifically? Yeah.
1: Yeah, go- going into risk was one of the best things that ever happened to me. But I say it that way because it wasn't actually a, a decision that I made myself. I had background in risk management. A lot of my statistical focus was on risk management. I'd done internships in risk management, but I was actually not hired by King Street to go into risk management. I was actually hired as an, as an analyst. However, the firm made a decision immediately before I joined in the summer of 2007 to begin building out a pretty robust risk practice. And in We know today that that was an extremely prescient decision because 2007 was the market top summer of 2007. And they were, instead of like reveling in the fact that markets only go up, they were very, very focused on building a formal risk infrastructure. And because of my background and experience, despite being very new at the firm, I was tasked uh, along with my boss, who's a wonderful mentor for me, I was tasked with building out this brand new, like formalized program. And so I, uh, I showed up my first day and I had a different chair than I thought and different coworkers around me than I thought I was going to have. And I threw myself into it. And I was a little surprised, but I threw myself into it and it turned out to be a really remarkable experience. And I've got this hands-on experience that I just wouldn't have had anywhere else because I was able to go across the entire firm, just learning about everything that happened, building tools, building pricing models, talking with people. And it was just an amazing uh, education. It was one of the first times in my life I got paid to learn something, which was just Phenomenal. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I'm just curious. Like, how did that training in risk management stick with you throughout your later career phase in data and now in like tooling and and even like as a startup startup? Yeah,
1: I think it's made a huge impact. I think my team might start to be sick of me talking about it, but I really think it's made a huge impact in the way that you some of the decisions that we have to make as a firm. As a risk manager, my job was to understand how things behave. I think a lot of people believe that risk management about preventing bad outcomes, or there's some sort of fantasy where everything's going badly, risk manager comes running in, gives their hand on the big red button and sort of saves the day. That doesn't happen. By the time the risk manager's in the room, usually it's too late. So the risk manager's job and the way for a risk manager to be most effective is to, when things are good, really understand the behavior of all the assets in question in, in a financial context or, or you know, whatever the metric of interest is. Their job is to understand the behavior of it So, that when something starts to happen that's unexpected, they can speak with expertise and confidence that would otherwise sort of be impossible to gain in the moment. And so that's translated really nicely into a startup context because every day at a startup, you need to make decisions about things that you have very incomplete information about. And you need to make them with high confidence and they're extremely permanent, right? Should we build this product? Should we use this pricing structure? Should we work with this customer? Should we sign this contract? Uh, should we use this software? Should we build it this way or this feature? These are all questions that startups have to make at the time in their life when they have as little information as possible about the world. And thats if you think about it, it's crazy, right? You We're asking these companies to make these permanent decisions when they're least equipped to do so. And so I think one of the best things that any startup can do is create a, a process of decision-making, which maximizes the probability that it makes good decisions at a time when it has bad information. And so I think that the risk management mindset served me well personally, when ultimately I found myself here with Prefect building a startup, because making those types of decisions under uncertainty just comes very naturally to me. I'm, I'm very trained to do that. And I'm I'm glad I've been able to teach some of that uh, to my team. And then in turn, of course, learn from their expertise as we make decisions together.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I really love the answer. And this uncertainty my uh, expected payoff, right? We talk about like the prefecture any later on in our chat. But before that, in 2011, you founded your own consultancy loading data company that designed new ML system for time-series data. So yeah, what urged you to make this career decision?
1: Yeah, this is another example of something that might look like it's kind of in stride, but was a completely uh, very frightening decision, to be, to be honest. I, in 2010, became fascinated with what were then very early machine learning models, right? This is before neural nets were a well-known concept. This was before deep learning was a term. I saw a video of Jeff Hinton giving a lecture about restricted Boltzmann machines, essentially dreaming about like MNIST sets. Like at the time, you have to remember, this was the most cutting-edge, mind-blowing thing in the world. It took hours and hours to train. Today, this is like hello world in a modern, you know, machine learning framework. Like you turn it on, you call this function and it produces this representation for you to prove that it works. Back then, this was like, I couldn't believe it. I watched this video over and over and over. And uh, I remember I called my brother and I said, hey, I just saw a machine that can dream and I have to go build that now. I have to go do that now. I just really became obsessed with it. And ultimately, I would leave my job. And we know the end of the story. I created this business called And Data Company, which was a successful small business. But at the time, I didn't know what I was going to do. I just wanted to go work on these machine learning models. And I became involved in a piece of software called Feano, which at the time was sort of the machine learning framework du jour. And I, it was one of the first times that I began building frameworks because I was working with many clients, I needed to very quickly deploy models for them. This is before any of the tools we take for granted today as data scientists. And so I needed a way to quickly translate their business objectives into the very low level code that my tooling allowed me to put together. And so I had a product, I believe it called it Scarecrow at the time. I was on a Wizard of Oz kick and it wanted a brain because it was an AI tool. So I called it Scarecrow. And uh, Scarecrow was, was sort of a workflow framework for building machine learning models at the time and it, as you mentioned my focus was on time series because that's always been my sort of statistical expertise is time series and time series even today is certainly less understood and less well practiced compared to other forms of maybe you know image recognition or more static uh, machine learning techniques so it was a, at the time it was you know completely completely the wild west and it was just so much fun to explore these different methods and deliver solutions for people
0: yeah thank you for sharing that anecdote i learned about rb and RASCO, so definitely it's very interesting to kind of here that it was what inspired you to get into ml and for the rest of the conversation we talk more about the sort of the data ecosystem but as we talk about your interest getting involved with ml i'm just kind of curious to kind to of hear it's just sort of a general perspective on how tooling for ml and and sort of the ml of those kind of infrastructure. Are evolving. Are you still tangentially being aware of the development in the ecosystem? If so, like what are some of the things that excited about you about like actually productionized and now in the real world?
1: I am. I'm. I'm still very, very in touch with that. First of all, I think that just as someone who's been involved in that space for you know, ten years now, formally, it's incredible to see what I can do. I can click a button on like a hosted web page now and do things that I could only dream about 10 years ago with every GPU on the planet uh, at my disposal. So it, just the, the degree to which the technology has become available is fascinating to me. Now we still see a lot of the same mistakes being made because at the end of the day, and I'm talking my book a little bit here, but at the end of the day, these are statistical tools and they're only as good as the like inference that you can bring to them and the, and the interpretation that you can bring out of them despite the fact that in many cases they feel this way, this isn't a situation where you push a button and like magically like things happen. And I think this is why a lot of these conversations about, you know, neural net, like waking up one day and like taking a like we're so far from that. These are math. These are fancy regressions at the end of the day. At this time, they're just getting very, very, very big. And as a, Consequence of that, they're getting very, very powerful in the sense that they can represent and approximate an extraordinary state space of functions. And so it's amazing to see that, but knowing that deep down inside them, what they are is the same basic architecture that we were playing with 10 years ago, just with way fancier training algorithms and way larger parameter sets is so cool. <laughs> like it's, it's this really interesting idea that you start with something simple, and you keep iterating on it, and you can end up with something extraordinary.
0: Yeah, thanks for sharing that perspective. I think really, like, you know, given the fact that you have a very grounded background, in statistics really enable you to kind of, like, understand the fundamentals and separate signal from noise.
1: I think one of my favorite things, I was going to say one of the best things about being a statistician, but that's a little self-serving. One of my favorite things about being a statistician is that I think at the end of the day, more than anything else, it taught me how to think about, the output of of a thing or of a model. So as a statistician, you care far less about the fact that you have an estimate of what a parameter is and far more about what the error band around that is, right? Statisticians live and die by p-values or whatever metric you choose to measure confidence by. And that is a skill that becomes fungible all over the place. Because when people say like, we should do this or we should do that, there is necessarily some uncertainty, some question attached to that statement. And I think that all this practice with statistics helped me be very open to the idea that just because someone says something with great confidence doesn't mean that it is actually, you know, probabilistically likely. And so living in this probabilistic world and being very comfortable living in a somewhat ambiguous probabilistic world, I think is something that statistical training was very helpful with to a degree. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. So between 2016 and 2020, you were a project member, committee member, and core committer of Apache Airflow, which is a platform created by the community to programmatically author schedule and monitor workflows. How did this opportunity come about? And also, like, what are some of the valuable lessons about open source development have you absorbed during this period?
1: So many lessons. So this came about because I, like many you know, interesting stories, I had a problem and a solution presented itself. My problem was I I was running out of hours in the day and I was spending a lot of time on activities that felt very repetitive and had a lot to do with code. And basically the same day that I was reaching a breaking point on this, Airflow was open sourced. I was very excited because here was a project that promised to do like automate all these things that I really didn't want to be spending my time on. However, Airflow was a Python 2 project and back in 2011, when I went off to do and Data Company, I, at the same time, switched cold turkey to Python 3, which at the time caused me some problems. But as my team will tell you, I am nothing but someone who loves using new shiny things, always. So I was Python 3 only. Airflow was Python 2. And so my initial involvement with Airflow as a developer was to make it a dual Python 3, Python 2 code base from top to bottom. And as a consequence of doing that, I gained some extreme familiarity with the product because there wasn't a file I I didn't touch. And as I became a user of it, it was therefore only natural, given that familiarity, to also continue in a developer capacity. And so I eventually joined the initial developer team and later became a a PMC and and stayed on the PMC uh, through the end of last year. Now, you also asked about lessons about open source development. Learned a lot of lessons. Learned a lot of lessons about not just open source development, but open source governance and governance institutions. And I learned what I think a lot of people can tell you from a different context, which is that committee-driven anything never does anything, like nothing interesting comes out of a committee, basically. And in many ways, I think that there are many amazing open source projects that have strong governance structures that are largely in place if you squint at them to preserve the functionality that's been achieved in the product, to block the product from dramatically changing or rapidly changing. And in many cases, that's a really great thing. On Airflow, that became a little bit stifling for myself in particular, as my needs as a data scientist became more paramount, right? So I I remember I come from this machine learning world where we are starting to use huge parameter sets. I'm using Dask, so I'm scaling up tasks, you know, by the thousands uh, with millisecond latency. And Airflow came from a starting point that was about hourly and daily batch jobs, kicking them off in some third-party system. So it was very important to me that I found a tool that gave me the same utility as Airflow but in the context of my data science work. And uh, those were some changes that I tried to motivate in Airflow itself. And basically couldn't convince the committee that the future of data was analytic. Uh, All the things that we take for granted today, all the things that have made Prefect successful today, I really couldn't get sufficient buy-in to make those changes to Airflow about five years ago. And uh, that's okay. I needed... To do this, it, it wasn't for me, it wasn't a question of like, oh, shoot, I guess I can't do this in Airflow. I needed this. This was a problem I felt intimately. And so I began building tools for myself to take some of the concepts that I loved uh, in this automation framework that I was lucky to have participated in building, Airflow, and marry them to the fast paced, cutting edge modern data science platforms that I was also privileged to be building as a consequence of my job. Mm-hmm. And the result would eventually become. Prefect. That was how the prototype of Prefect was born.
0: Yeah, thanks for sharing the context and kind of your involvement with the project. And th- I think that part about open source governance is super interesting. It's less so about the, the actual technical idea, but more so about the uh, yeah, like you said, buy in from relevant people. And it seems like the more chef in the kitchen, the harder it is to cook a good meal, right?
1: It can be even when, and you know, in fairness, even when a lot of those chefs are extraordinarily talented, mm-hmm. right? So committees have just come to really committees have a way of just killing themselves. It's very important, especially when you're building a product, to have a very clear vision of that product. And I think any PM listening to us talking will nod at this. Very often, expressing a product vision means saying no to things, not saying yes to things. It's very easy to come up with features or ideas that nominally add value because doing something is inarguably better than not doing something. But whether or not that value accrues to a product vision or solving a problem is actually a separate step. And I think that one thing that committees are very bad at doing is rejecting small ideas because they don't align with the product vision, whereas they'll reject large ideas because the idea is too large to get past the committee. And so you end up in this place where innovation is just difficult. You grow out, not up when you have committee-driven products. And I think that is most visible in open source because the governance mechanism in open source is frequently committee-driven, unless you're a project that's a a benevolent dictator, as it were, uh, or a real clear vision or problem statement for what you're trying to achieve that any feature can be measured against. But I think if you think about great products, great products are almost never designed by a committee. Great products are designed by a vision or defined by a vision, I should say. That there's some editorial license to continue making progress against.
0: Yeah, perfect. So that kind of led itself to my next question. You started work on what eventually became Prefect, which is a data flow scheduler. Born out of your experience working with Airflow, and talking about vision, really Prefect centered on the uh, negative engineering problems, which, based on my research, essentially said that engineers write defensive code to make sure the positive code actually runs. So, can you sort of unpack this notion of negative engineering and share some more context on the story behind the inception, briefly.
1: Absolutely. Negative engineering is something that I think is very familiar to many people, but they may not have given it a name because it's something that arises between things. Uh, That's one of the reasons we call it negative engineering. It's in the negative space. It's between a data engineering team and a data science team. It's between a database and a data warehouse. It's between one tool and another tool. It's the idea that there's there's a gap of responsibility and when we're writing code or putting analytics into the world or trying to achieve some business purpose, there is this enormous amount of work we have to do to ensure that they run as expected to defend them against failure, whether it's a bug in the code or the internet <laughs> like goes out or the server crashes or whatever it is. Those are all things that could happen and we need to defend our code against them. And so we split the world into two. Positive engineering is, I need to deliver this model. I need to deliver this analytic. I need to you know, build this system. And negative engineering is, okay, I got to make sure that this thing refreshes every day at nine o'clock. And I got to make sure that if malformed data comes in, it doesn't crash it because I trapped that. And I got to make sure that I send logs and I got to make sure that it runs on a machine with a GPU. And I got to do this and I got to do that. And It's sort of infinite checklist. And we all decide in some degree, how much of that checklist we want to actually embrace and you know, you're putting something into production revenue setting. Yeah, you have to do a lot of it. You really have to make sure this thing's rock solid. And if it's just you on your laptop with a script, you don't have to do that much. And that's negative engineering. It's this other stuff that you need to take on in order to achieve your objective. Now, negative engineering is a mission of Prefect. It's the easily the most resonant idea we've ever come up with. And yet, four years ago, five years ago, when I was talking about this, I didn't know what this problem was called. I also was very confused why nobody else seemed to like, feel it. It was very weird to me. And eventually, I identified that one of the reasons that I was experiencing it when others didn't seem to be is that in the roles that I had in low-end data, King Street, anywhere, I was both the data scientist and the data engineer. I was fulfilling roles that today are traditionally split between the two. And I think broadly speaking, if you go to a data science team, they're pretty happy with their tooling. I'd actually say they're very happy with their tooling. Data science tooling is, as we discussed, it's kind of extraordinary. Data engineers, I, I think today are a little bit less happy than they used to be, but a few years ago they, yeah, they were they were happy. They had tools, Airflow, Luigi, whatever, whatever it was, they had tools that achieved their purpose. And it was really only people who bridged the gap between them who viscerally agreed with me that something was wrong. And I spent a lot of time thinking about why that was. And, and that's where again this idea of negative engineering came from. Is this the realization that it's between the groups? It's the handoff, it's the communication, it's the handoff of responsibility that. Characterize a negative engineering problem. And so once we had a name for this, is when things really started to take off. I'd come into you know a room with somebody and I'd say to them, Oh, workflow management and data flow and all this stuff. And maybe it's interesting to them, maybe they recognize the business problem there, maybe they didn't. But I'd start talking about negative engineering and sort of the hidden costs of this. And you have a production incident and you don't know where it happened, you don't know what machine to exec into because the machine's down. And all of a sudden, people just lit up and they're like, yes, I hate that idea. I hate that we have to get ready for that. And I realized in some way that we were talking about a risk management problem. Mm. Today, we view Prefect as an insurance product first. So when you're using Prefect, what you're really doing is you're doing the minimal amount of work possible to instrument your code with a set of instructions. And then Prefect's job, whether it's my company with Prefect Cloud or our open source products, Prefect's job is to respect your instructions, mainly in the event that something didn't go as you expected. If code ran the way people expected it to run, you don't need a workflow system, like right? use Cron, kick off your workflow, it's just a bunch of functions you call in order, it's gonna run, like it's great. Like, yeah, we can do nice things, we can schedule it, we can show you the history of it, we can surface artifacts and parameters from it, we can can do a lot of nice things in the UI, but Prefect earns its keep when things go wrong, when things happen that you didn't expect. Mm -hmm. And so that realization that we need to be as invisible as possible when things go right and as helpful as possible when things go wrong, is part of that product vision about eliminating negative engineering and being this insurance like partner for our
0: users. Yeah, thanks for being extremely detailed on, on that context. And I love that part when you say you really focus on uh, that gap between data engineers and data scientists and really kind of the people who have to traverse between both of this responsibility and, and design workflow capabilities that enable them to do their job better. In fact, you actually gave a talk at PyData DC 2018 where you mentioned this concept uh, of negative engineering and uh, give a brief history of workflows and explain how Prefect is being designed to tackle some of that and be sure to include that into the show notes so listeners can have a chance to go back, take a look, conceptualize the ideas that Jeremiah just mentioned. Let's dissect some of the key capabilities that are backed into the Prefect products. So Prefect Core is the open source framework that is stocked with all the necessary components for designing building, testing, and running powerful data applications. Would you mind going over some of the most powerful features of Prefect Core?
1: Absolutely. I think some of them might surprise you. I remember early in the life of Prefect, I was describing what we did to a very well-known VC who said to me, he said, this all sounds kind of trivial. And I sort of had to laugh and I was like, yeah, it is in a way. And yet companies spend hundreds and thousands of dollars a year, millions of dollars a year solving this problem. And so there's something about its triviality that is deceptive. What Prefect offers are really, really great, what we think of as little Lego bricks. Each one is innocuous. Red brick with six bumps on it, blue brick with two bumps on it, whatever it is. But you can snap them together to build really amazing data applications. And our job is to provide the bricks. Our user's job is to follow the instructions to build whatever amazing thing they want. And we guarantee that all the bricks fit together. the Bumps line up and they're all the same shape and size to stretch the metaphor. So what does that look like in practice? Our core features include things like retries, logging, parameterization, history tracking, scheduling, things that none of them should sound mind shattering or maybe even that interesting, to be honest with you, because they fall into this negative engineering spectrum. But as anyone can attest, if you've got something that's supposed to run at nine o'clock and it doesn't respect a daylight savings boundary or doesn't run at all because your scheduler died, you have a problem. If you have a node that goes down and it didn't produce logs that you can see because the logs were stored on the node, you have a problem. If your code doesn't run because a malformed, like payload was received from some API, and you don't have a way to retry that or even find out, you have a problem. And so all of this, again, with that insurance mindset, all of this is geared not around necessarily the delivering of new functionality. Our users are extremely experienced developers and engineers. They can achieve their goals and they have great tools to do that. Our job is to sit there and give them really robust, well-tested building blocks for putting a defensive scaffold around that. And to reemphasize the triviality of this, the number one competitor, if you will, of Prefect is not Airflow. It's actually homegrown solutions. And there's a really good reason for that, which is that every single engineer on the planet who has encountered one of these problems that we're talking about here, every data scientist who's need to schedule, it, they don't go looking for a third-party tool. They build it themselves because it feels easy. And all of these homegrown workflow systems, in every company in the world has one in some form, whether they realize it or not all of them start with an engineer encountering a problem and deciding to solve it themselves. And then they solve one more problem, and then they solve one more problem. And pretty soon, all these little trivial components become a huge, emergently complex issue across multiple environments and multiple devs and permissioning and off and deployments and different models and different requirements and configuration, and it spirals out of control really fast. But like all low-level infrastructure, once you step down that path, It's really, really hard to change. And so more than half of Prefect users we find actually come from these homegrown systems. And we keep hearing from company after company that is replacing homegrown systems entirely with Prefect. And we love to hear that. One of the reasons that we think that's very possible is because they're adopting Prefect incrementally. Mm -hmm. Start with the scheduler, Mm -hmm. you know, add retry handling, add this. And, And because we focused on this incremental and ease of use, it becomes very easy for companies to do what would otherwise be impossible, rip out a workflow orchestrator and drop in another one.
0: Yeah, thanks for sharing the context and, and how you know the trivialities is essential. Right? It's it, it's in a
1: funny way, it's a key part of our objective is that what we do should look and feel easy. We know it's hard. I'll tell you that solving retries in a distributed setting with data flow is one of the hardest problems we've ever undertaken, technically speaking. And it's the one where everyone assumes to run the code again. Well, from where, with what environment, with what data, how do you get the serialization? What if there were runtime configs? What if there's side of, like, the list goes on and on and on and on about things you need to deal with. And most tools take the approach too bad. Like, under a very small set of circumstances, this is one of the reasons Airflow doesn't have proper data flow. Under a very small set of circumstances, we know that we can do this. So those are the only circumstances we allow. Like I'm a data scientist. I don't want to deal with some other tool's limited vocabulary. I want to do whatever I want to do. And so solving that problem is so hard, but it feels easy. And from a business standpoint, that's a nice place. That's a nice place to live. We know that we can deliver enormous value here, because we know it's not an easy problem.
0: Yeah, like solving something that is tedious, but it's worth rewarding. Is like that intersection is like the ideal for a lot of economic value. Um, exactly. So that is Prefect Core Remain Framework. And besides that, Prefect Cloud is the managed platform that guides users to the right tools and ensure that their projects are successful. So, you know, can you share a bit about some of the advanced commercial features of Prefect Cloud that complement users of Prefect Core?
1: Absolutely. So Prefect Cloud is, is our commercial platform. It, it has a free tier and a light version of it is available in an open source form as well that we uh, open source as Of our pandemic response a little less than a year and a half ago. And what it is is providing a back end to the prefect core workflow engine. So we're we've set all these instructions in Python code uh, about how we want our code to be treated and what insurance sort of paradigms want to be applied to it. And then we need a place to make sure that those instructions are respected in a really robust way. If the you know it's a who watches the watcher kind of question. If the same computer that's running my code is also the computer that's running the workflow management system, then the same event that takes down my code has a pretty good chance of taking down the workflow manager and I get no insurance benefits. So one of the key reasons Prefect Cloud even exists is to provide a highly available and robust solution for enforcing the the insurance rules that the users are expressing in their code. And then once we have that platform, we can do all kinds of really interesting things there. We can do things with users and permissions and authorization and, and custom access and help businesses create the appropriate access levels that they require across what might be sensitive workflows. We can do secret management. We can do a very interesting thing that we released recently is sort of a managed key value store for permissioned access to data. So this is this is useful. For example, let's say you have an ETL process that runs on a schedule and whenever it runs, it gets the most recently added data to some database and it archives it somewhere. So you have this question of how do you know what the most recently available data was? So the naive solution is you say, great, I run this thing every 10 minutes. So I'm going to get the last 10 minutes of data. But remember, we live in a place where things sometimes go wrong. So what if for some reason you skipped a run? Well, maybe you need to get 20 minutes of data now for the next time it runs, or 30 minutes of data. And so there's this need to store this bit of ancillary state. In the early days of Prefect, we didn't have that place. We used third-party services. We said, use a database, use an you, you know, we we'll use some API to store this information and recover it. And then this became such a popular way of working, this sort of Delta transformation, that we began introducing facilities for people to access state and store state that's not directly related to this workflow. It's not like needed for the logic of this workflow, but it's needed for the logic of, say, another run of this workflow. And so facilities like that where we have access to global state, concurrency limiting, maybe you don't want more than 20 tasks at a time to be talking to your database to avoid overloading it. So that's something where global state becomes really important. And yeah, so we introduced a variety of features that we were able to introduce by virtue of the fact that Prefect Cloud is a platform with total oversight of all workflows. So our global features exist in the platform and our local execution features exist in the open source uh, engine, You know where they can be applied wherever the engine is deployed.
0: Yeah, thanks for putting context. And just kind of going over that relationship between Prefect Call and, and Prefect Cloud, So, you know, on the topic of product strategy, while doing the research for this conversation, I came across this blog post that you wrote called Toward Dataflow Automation. So it distinguishes the difference between what a company makes and what a company sells. Essentially, Prefect makes Prefect Core the best tool for being data application, and then sells Prefect Cloud a powerful service for Dataflow Automation. How did, you know, you personally or your team, you know, come up with such a framework for product strategy?
1: So I believe that this is at the core of what makes all successful businesses. And I think it's especially pronounced in open source businesses. Great companies make things and then they sell things. And the more difference there is between what they make and what they sell, the better the company is. And this isn't something where you go and you, you, know, you look at their you know, income statement and you see like, oh, what did you sell? This is much more of an abstraction. One of my favorite examples is like Chevy makes Silverados, but they sell Corvettes right? So there's one thing is where they pour the majority of their time and energy and resources into the actual production. And then there's another place where they deliver something that actually accrues clear value to the company. So the Corvette as a halo car is actually driving the the sales of Silverado, but the company's brand and value and stature is attached to this thing that I call the thing they sell. you know a more, a more literal example of that you know Chevy makes Silverados and sells leases because like you know that could be a huge part of their business model. Google makes a search engine and sells attention or sells advertisements or you name it uh, Apple you know makes computers and sells a lifestyle the same with Nike right and I, I think if you think about great companies, the company is not known for the thing that they literally, physically deliver. It's a conscious part of product strategy and the alignment of the delivery of value to a user versus the delivery of like a commodity effort or something you produce to the user. Now in open source companies, the majority of companies seem to miss this. They seem to believe that the same lines of code that they're writing are the value delivery to the user. And that's never been true of software. And just because the user can see the lines of code doesn't make it true in open source. In fact, if anything, it cheapens the idea that software is this holistic, and like beautifully architected combination of more than just lines of code, right? Because of those lines of code, in a different order in a different place with one typo, all value that the software can be delivered can be eliminated. And so we really have to think through this idea, what do we make? What do we spend our time doing? And then how do we deliver value that's commercially interesting? Again, for an open source company, the starkness of this is if you deliver it in an open source context, it's very hard to actually try to get somebody to pay for it. And so as a consequence of that, what you'll see in the open source world is a series of what we view as antagonistic business models. I produce an open source product, but you have to pay me to run it. I think that's crazy. I also think that's crazy for any startup because if the value add that your startup is claiming to offer is that you put a piece of open source software on a CPU, your competitors are public clouds. Like that's what they do. And that's crazy for a startup to claim that that's their value add. So we, we think that's a, a really terrible business model. Another antagonistic business model you'll see is there's an open source piece of software with like enterprise gated features. So it's the same exact product, but, but because of a licensing clause, you can't use some of the features unless you pay money. We think that's a very antagonistic business model. The business model that we prefer in open source is We make one product, which is open source, and then we sell a completely different product that happens to be powered by the open source product. And so it's very much allows a user to fully use the open source product or elect to gain additional functionality and value in a different product that happens to be reliant on it. For us, the metaphor is an engine and a car. For some people, you want to buy an engine and you're using it for some purpose that you have. Maybe you're building a car. Maybe you are a car manufacturer yourself. Great. We have an open source engine that you can just go take. But for some people, you want the service or the seats or the red paint or whatever the case may be. And the car is actually the thing of interest. The car happens to be powered by the engine, but the car and the engine are distinct products. And so we make an engine, we sell a car, and it's become a very interesting and aligned business model for our company.
0: Yeah, that very illuminating. The uh, us sort of the flywheel between the engine and the car and how, you know, to derive value from both of those by, by using both services at the same time. I think that's the valuable frameworks for open source developers and providers who want to bring their projects into commercialization. And kind of related to that point about this relationship between Prefect Core and Prefect Cloud, you come up with this concept called the hybrid execution model. Essentially, it's like what you just mentioned, this relationship where Prefect users can take advantage of both the workflow software combining with the convenience and cost saving of a fully managed service with security and privacy being layered on top using an on-premise solution. So in the context of a data war and, and workflow automation you know, aspect, can you explain sort of the novelty of this model?
1: Yeah, this is one of those things where if we realized how important and valuable this was, we would have given it a real name instead of the hybrid model, but it's called the hybrid model and it sticks. So this model came as a challenge, actually, from CTO, the hedge fund I used to work at. And uh, I was telling him what we wanted to do and, uh, that we intended to build this managed service, which at the time we were considering doing and hadn't quite had all the thoughts that I just shared with you about product strategy uh, fully fleshed out yet. And he said, oh, well, we could never use that then. I said, well, why not? And he said, because we'll never send our code or our data to a managed service. We don't trust it. N- none of our peers would either. I said, okay, well, I guess that's why we would offer you an on-prem version of our software so that you could keep it entirely in-house. He said, No. So we're a .NET shop. You're doing all this like new Python stuff. I don't want to be hiring developers just so I can use your software. It's an extraordinarily expensive thing for us to do. It's not like aligned with how we run our own software. I don't want to deal with that either. And I said, Oh, I guess I guess you just won't be able to be our customer then. And he said, No. He basically was like, I've seen you solve harder problems than this. Go figure it out. And so we came up with this system, our hybrid model, in which code and data remains on prem with our open source software. And all of the quote hard work, if you will, all of the infrastructure required to manage it stays on our infrastructure. And the key to the whole model is that we have a metadata exchange between them. So we don't accept code or data across that boundary. And so the upshot of this is that the customer keeps all execution of code and data private and on their infrastructure, Mm -hmm. just like they would with on-prem, but they have to run no additional infrastructure except that which they would already have to use to run their code because we keep that all on our side as a SaaS product that exchanges only anonymized metadata and we built this honestly in, in response to this challenge from my mentor and then we were very surprised when our very first enterprise customer told us it met all of their security requirements honestly I say we were surprised like we didn't know we we asked them if it did but they were so enthusiastic about it that We, on that day, threw away all of our plans to build a managed product and an on-prem product. And we went all in Mm. on this hybrid delivery model. And as a consequence of that, we uh, had some very early traction with companies in financial services and healthcare, both industries where privacy and and regulated data are paramount. And we were able to offer this differentiated product, essentially the the cost of a SaaS product with the privacy benefits of an on-prem product. And so we built up these really strong early relationships and partnerships there, which let us really, really build the product out in a meaningful way with these with these wonderful customer relationships. And then as we expanded into other industries and just got the technology out there more broadly, we benefited from that key understanding. And so today we have yet to have a company. Many, many, many companies have approached us and said, no, 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 this can't possibly pass our security model. And we have yet to have a single company tell us that they can not use the software on a security basis, which is just amazing to see the versatility of of this model. So we have a lot of intellectual property now at this point behind it. We have some new extensions of this in the works that are going to make it sort of dramatically more powerful because once you lean into this way of working, you can just do amazing things. It's a great story about being open to an idea and really exploring it, discovering its value, and then just focusing on delivering that value as much as we can.
0: Yeah, I think like that. An exciting space to be in because security and privacy, obviously, are going to be more and more important moving forward. As you know, the role of data keep emerging. I'm just curious, like you know, you talk about that concept sounds very great. From a technically implementation, a bit like, what are some of the infrastructure and engineering challenges of actually, you know, integrating this on brand and none?
1: I think like anything, there are aspects of it that seem easy and are very deceptively complicated, and there are aspects of it that seem very complicated but are actually quite easy. One of the more challenging things for us was actually helping our users understand the model so that they could properly take advantage of it. There are certain things that Prefect cannot do, Prefect Cloud cannot do, because we cannot see your code. It's a rule we have today cannot see your code. So there are certain things that we cannot do. However, there are certain things that we do that users, especially coming from Airflow, think we can do only because we have access to the code, showing schematics of what's happening and And giving a lot of detail and and, uh, if the user opts into it, showing things like tracebacks, which again, sort of blurs that line for users who want to send tracebacks to us, great, we can show it in our UI. For users who don't, no problem, keep it on your infrastructure. The user can choose how much they want to share. But a lot of this surprised our early users. They didn't think that we could deliver a system that had the utility of a system that had full access to the code and data. And so the real challenge for us was educating people and designing APIs by which there are some companies, for example, who will not send their logs to Prefect Cloud, because that is a part of their private data that they do not want leaving their server boundary. Okay, we help them understand how to redirect that elsewhere. But there are companies for whom code and data stays private, but logs are actually extremely useful for them to be able to log into assess and see, and, and they'll take steps to guard the privacy there. So finding the right way to put tools into our customers' hands to decide how to take advantage of this model was one of the most challenging product efforts here. The technical side of it, It's not that crazy, to be honest with you. It's the process that it enables where all the complexity is and where all the IP is, as a matter of fact. Uh, This has never been done in our space before, as it turns out, which is mind-blowing. And so uh, we were able to develop a lot of really interesting and innovative ways of creating this communication pattern that made it as easy as possible for our users to deploy this.
0: Yeah, thanks for pulling the curtain behind the strategy that you used of executing this approach. Last year, your team released Prefect Server and Prefect UI, a couple of more features that enable users to run parts of Prefect Cloud locally. So how do these product offerings contribute to Prefect's mission of eliminating negative data engineering?
1: This is a great question. I, I think with our, our community, it's, it's well known that we did this as part of an effort that we called Project Earth. and This was our, part of our pandemic response. Uh, when the pandemic set in in mid-March, our commercial platform, Prefect Cloud, was just a couple of weeks into its wide release. As if the pandemic wasn't worrisome enough to have a very, very young commercial product out in the world was frightening, right? We, we were in a world where we didn't know capital markets could be closed, Nobody's buying software. Like a lot of these stories we know obviously didn't pan out that way, but we decided to make plans as if they would. And we believe so strongly that we had built such a great platform. We had seen over and over from our early users that we solved real problems that they had that, you know, we, there was just no way we were going to let COVID stand between us and delivering that value to users basically. And so we made this decision, which was contrary to a lot of our business strategy, to take the core of Prefect Cloud and open source it. And that became Prefect Server and we open sourced the entire UI. And we did that, you know, in what felt like an emergency kind of setting. We did it in about a week as a team. And as you might expect from a product that was basically built in a week, it was a little rough around the edges, but the response to it was extraordinary. And we learned some good lessons. For example, we learned that we should not have kept the UI proprietary at all. The UI turned out to be one of the primary ways that people communicated the value of our engine to their colleagues. And so we made this decision essentially believing that the commercial landscape was damaged at the least and we should instead participate in the open source uh, market as much as we could. What ended up happening is we participated in the commercial rebound very quickly because all of these companies out there tried our product, used the UI to communicate value, and then started calling us up for commercial contracts and support. And so in a very interesting way, this step that we took of trying to deliver our product to as many people as possible, believing that we needed to do that in the absence of commercial interest, more than anything else we've ever done triggered a growth cycle for us because it just made, I mean, it sounds so simple to say now, but put our product in more people's hands. So more people liked our product because it's a damn good product. And as a consequence of that, the company just took off. And so it's one of these things where we were very, very timid about open sourcing so much of our stack. As a young company, it's a very one-way door. It's not that we didn't want to as much as we were just, what if you get it wrong? What what if we open source the one thing that people are willing to pay for? And then our whole company is ruined. All these questions go through your head, which in the end is so silly. It doesn't matter. We put value in people's hands. They discovered there was value. We offer our other product that you know, has other value for a certain subset of customers, and they showed up to buy it. So they contribute to the mission mm. because they helped more people eliminate negative engineering, which was additive to our story as a company, which in turn led to commercial growth on the business side.
0: Right. And yeah, you you actually written a couple of blog posts about like these ideas. And as you mentioned, usage of perfect cloud grows exponentially, you know, every quarter since, since the pandemic. And as you kind of mentioned, such amazing growth came as a result of like that decision to gradually open source you know, the platform. How did your team kind of make the decision to prioritize what component uh, of the perfect class to, to open source?
1: We had an objective. I, I, I'm forgetting exactly how we set it in this moment, but I think there was a goal that you could schedule, run a flow, see its history, watch it move through a live schematic. There was a very clear user story that we decided we were going to optimize for. It was the most critical sort of feedback loop of the workflow orchestration puzzle. And the reason that was, you know, an interesting decision at the time is because we believed it was the most critical part of the loop. We also believed it was a key part of the value we were delivering in Prefect Cloud. It turns out it wasn't. It was a key part of what we were making, not what we were selling. And so that was the sort of mission statement that we put up. And we delivered uh, the entirety of the stack that made that critical loop possible.
0: Um, yeah, the whole thing that impacts every stage of the workflow. Um, exactly. Let's take off your data engineering head and put on your photo head. Prefect follows a somewhat called cool success based pricing model, where the cost is based entirely on the number of tasks that users run successfully each month. How did your team settle on this pricing model?
1: So, earlier in this conversation, we talked about antagonistic pricing and antagonistic business models, where the company and the user are at odds. One of our objectives, therefore, is not just to not have an antagonistic model, but to actually create an aligned model where it is fair and it is in the user's interests. And Prefect, as we've discussed earlier, is an insurance product. And so we're most useful when things go wrong. But charging people for when things go wrong is sort of terrible. It's also not how insurance is, is priced and sold. And so by being able to say to people that we don't charge you when things went wrong like like that's on us essentially it is more than anything else it's a way for us to create the alignment in the business model in a simple way that makes a ton of sense to people and it's one of the only times in my career and talking to people about pricing and things where we can say that to people and we just might get a little bit of like you know i think saying a smile would be generous but There's a little like glimpse of a, you know, okay, we get it. We we get it. You're doing something nice here. We're doing something nice here. It's a line. We're not seeking to kick somebody when they're down. And those little things are what create good relationships. That is, I've said it earlier in this conversation, that's at the core of our company is creating good relationships. We try our best to make good relationships in our Slack community. We try our best to make good relationships with our customers. It's these small gestures, these small demonstrations of that that make the difference. Empirically, does pricing on successful task runs versus not dramatically affect someone's bill to us? Well, at the end of the day, well, it depends on how many things fail in their world. You know, ironically, you could, you could control that. But at the end of the day, like, no, maybe we're talking about 10%, 5% differential in cost, not a meaningful number, but enough for us to agree that this is you know, not predatory, enough to make that uh, clear.
0: I love that you know it's really value driven really focused on what your customer can get, get out using the product so you talk about like that relationship with your uh, customers another group that is very relevant for the context of prefix is sort of open source contributors uh, so finding enthusiastic and passionate contributors is notoriously challenging for any open source project and prefix has a highly active community that grows by nearly a thousand people every month what were some of the hurdles that your team had to overcome in order to find, engage some of the early commuters to the prefect core framework?
1: One thing that I've sort of become fond of saying is that I think many companies are familiar with the cliche, do things that don't scale, as it relates to building the company, building the product. I think a lot of people do not do this when it comes to engaging their community. And there's a whole variety of reasons why that might be true. But we did a few things to maximize the success of this community. In the early days when it was five, 10, 20 people, whatever it was, Chris, our CTO and I, we used to like travel around the country, meeting people, giving them demos, helping them out. We created a very aggressive response time in Slack. I think the first one was, we tried 10 minutes, 15 minutes to answer any question. Uh, and these are all things that you'd think as soon as you get past 25 people asking questions, stuff, this isn't gonna work. But we have done our best to maintain, if not that same 15-minute time, that same feeling of responsiveness and making sure that people feel heard. Our belief is that if someone's going to come into our community, you know, probably they've tried our software. More often than not, they've run into some problem. Maybe it's our fault. Maybe it's their fault. It doesn't really matter. They've overcome a hurdle of actually finding the community, joining the community. And then they've done something that many people find difficult, which is asking a question in what amounts to a public place about a problem they're having. A lot of people just don't want to do that. And so having come through that entire journey, it almost feels like the least we can do is do our best to respond to them. And Chris has brought this great rule structure to our community and its code of conduct, which is that we always do our best to assume positive intent on people's mm-hmm. behalf. And we ask that they do the same for us. And so between all of that, we create this very positive environment where people can feel supported and they can feel secure, even if they're asking a question that relates to a frustration that they've had that you know we may have introduced into their life. And if that's the case... We want to eliminate it as fast as possible. And again, I said it before, but these relationships really matter. And so it's, there's no magic. I wish I could tell you, do, do these three things and you have this amazing community. No, it's hard work, responsiveness, attending to people's need, and listening.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I, I really love that answer. It's just kind of maybe really to that point, you know, your team grow and there's more people to join. The community also become bigger. How do you like personally institute that sense of urgency and responsiveness into the ethos of the company and, and the way you know it operates. Yeah.
1: I hope that the way we do that is by making it clear that this is important to us and by highlighting when these relationships play out, good and bad. We want this to be wrapped into the DNA of the company. We didn't have anyone who was solely dedicated to our community. For the first few years of the company instead we had everyone at the company on duty if you will you know responding and responsible for those responses and if a question sat out there for too long that was somebody's fault in a sense we might not know who exactly it was but as a company collectively it was our fault we let down the community and we that's just sort of how it was and so i hope i think i believe that that has sort of pervaded into the dna of the company now that this is just a core standard that we uphold is responsiveness both internally and externally. I think it drives everybody crazy when they ask a question in any setting and they just get ignored. Yeah. And so it's a very easy thing to ask somebody like, wouldn't you hate it if this happened to you? Yes. Okay. So let's collectively make sure it doesn't happen to our users. Is it hard work? Yeah. Especially as the community grows at this pace, it is hard. Um, and we are continually looking to reinvent that to make sure that we can keep delivering a good experience to our community. And also that we are capable of delivering that experience. To our community it's hard work and we have to figure out the right way to do it
0: yeah and I think like you know as, as a leader as you mentioned I think you and, and leadership team kind of serve as an example and show that to other people and that it kind of follows suit. so as we talk about like uh, company DNA, hiring is another critical responsibility of any early stage startup partner I came across this very uh, well written guide to building a high performance team on the prefects website and Essentially, what stood out to me from that article is that Prefect really emphasized the importance of hiring a team diverse in thoughts, background, makeups, and experiences. So how has this ideal vision kind of manifest itself inside Prefect's hiring strategy?
1: So uh, that blog post is fantastic. Our COO Sarah Moses, put it together, and I, I hope it gives some flavor to how we think internally, um, and in particular, sort of the values that we aspire to and the standards that we hold ourselves to. A big part of this is about clarity of expectation for ourselves, for prospective hires, for our interactions with the world. We want to be very clear about what we expect, the standards we uphold and how we conduct ourselves. And I think that a lot of the times when you see companies falling down in this regard, it's because they have avoided, again, doing what I think is the hard part. It's actually writing down like, what do we expect? What does performance look like? What does success look like? How do we project that into the world? So the ultimate version of this is I think we all know sort of the cliche or the stereotype, I guess, where a company will only hire from its network of known people, which means you have this very concentrated geographic and demographic group of people coming together to build something. And why can this be troublesome? Well, in the context of the framework that we've put up, it's troublesome because it means that you skip the laying out of the expectations. So for example, at Prefect, we will not hire someone without a job description that's been written and posted. Just because someone has shown up and told us that they can do something, and we believe that they can, and we you know, know them, so we know that they check all the references box and all, it's not enough. We need to put into the world for our own benefit, for planning purposes, and for the, I don't want to say the world's benefit, but for the world's opportunity to see that prefect is interested in hiring someone to satisfy the following objectives. It's critical. Now, maybe we end up hiring that person, maybe we don't. But the important note here and the way that we do our best to create an inclusive workforce is that we try to be objective about all of this. I think we put this type of standards in before we hired our 10th employee. And the reason was we were trying to put, based on advice we got from our advisory board, we were trying to put standards and ways of working in place that could scale to 100 employees and beyond as early as possible. Because everyone, there's this great mix of advice out there. A lot of people will say, don't worry about this until you're big enough that it matters. And then a lot of people will say, "Like if you don't do this early, you can never like change it culturally. And so we made the decision to do it early. It was a hell of a project for a young company to undertake, but it's paid off in spades because I think that now we have a really great written down guide to what it really and genuinely means to build a high performance team. And it's not, I get very disappointed by, you know, when companies publish their handbooks. At first I'm like, oh, this is amazing that companies are like making their handbook. But then you go in and you read it and it's just a bunch of platitudes and oh, our virtues are honesty and hard work. And it's like, oh, of course they are. Like, what kind of company would you be if they aren't? Show me what your standards are. Show me how, you, how people are incentivized. Show me like how this system actually works. And so we've put a lot of thought into that and to making those standards and expectations clear and exciting and interesting. So when someone joins our company, I always ask in every interview, tell me your personal objectives. Tell me your professional objectives. What do you want to achieve for yourself? Mm -hmm. And if those align with the stated and written objectives that Prefect has for itself, that could be something really remarkable. Whereas if someone's personal or professional objectives are to do something that's incompatible with the company seeking, we know that we're setting ourselves up for a tough situation. Mm -hmm. And so I think that this blog post is part of an effort we have to put into the world what we are seeking Mm -hmm. in as clear a way as possible so that we can attract as many people in as aligned as way as possible
0: to that end. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I totally agree. I think what I also really enjoy from the blog was is how do you like codify the culture into value and standard? And here like standard is things like avoid inertial thinking and then saying, I don't know, and the importance of having constructive feedback. So those are like some of the things, obviously that requires a lot of thought. i see that in a way, that you know you put together for Prefect, just like a quick sign on that. Like apparently, for every new eye, you are gonna give them like two copies of two books, Creativity, and then a book called Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Can you share a bit about the context for that and what is like, inspired to yeah. you to do that? Yeah,
1: yeah, of course. So, so Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is sort of this cultural touchstone for us. Our, our company is shares its name with one of the main characters of the book, Ford Prefect which is a happy coincidence because what we do as a company is we, we serve a function, which is very similar to a prefect in a school or in a government, which is we sort of make sure that things happen the way they're supposed to. But then to also share a name with this character and what is one of my favorite books is just really wonderful. And it gives us this sort of instant and shared, but external sort of cultural touchstone, which is the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. For those who are not familiar with it, I have a couple of copies right behind me here. It is a Absurd, completely ridiculous, but very, very, very funny science fiction book that I probably have reread once a year since I was eight or nine, which I think says probably more about me than maybe the book. It is, I consider it high literature. Most people probably don't, (laughs) in all honesty, but I, I really love the book. And it echoes throughout the culture that we have at Prefect, which is ultimately pragmatic, slightly absurd and very positive at all times, which I think are ways that I would describe the story that the the book tells. Creativity Inc., on the other hand, is a much more instructive book. Creativity Inc. is the story of Pixar. It was written by Ed Catmull, Mm -hmm. the founder and CEO of Pixar. And the culture that was developed at Pixar, I just think is extraordinary. It's an extremely academic culture. It's pursuing the production of something that is difficult to define at the moment you're building it, which is why it's called Creativity Inc. It's a machine that produces a creative, creative pursuit. Code, software, is ultimately a creative endeavor. We need to deliver value, but the way that we can choose to do that, the ways are, are, are infinite. We have so many choices to make. We have so many things to do. We have user expectations about what we're going to do. We want to meet those expectations and realize we want to surpass those expectations and others. And those expectations may actually be incorrect or premised on last generation software that we can like really deliver something cool against. And so the same ideas that became very important at Pixar for the production of high quality motion pictures, we've borrowed and established very much here at Prefect. chief among them are, you already said some of them, saying, I don't know, it's a core principle. I really hate when when people have an answer for everything. I just, I just don't believe it. I, I just don't believe it can be true. If someone doesn't say they don't, if, if someone doesn't say they don't know something, at some point in a conversation, you should probably not trust most of what they said because at least some piece of it was a lie. So uh, we really want people to acknowledge when they know something and when they don't know something. We don't want this false pressure to know everything. We want a collaborative environment. We want to fail quickly. We want iterative development. We want to learn from failures. Failures is a much better way to learn than guessing about what could have happened in a success. And the difference is between failure and learning is just how much the failure costs. If you fail early, then it's a lesson. If you fail late, then it's a real failure, then it has consequence. And so failing early and turning them into lessons is just so critical. Even the way that we discuss our product and solicit ideas turns out to have some real analogs in Creativity, Inc. and and how Pixar works. So we, we send both of those books to our incoming employees, one to give them some sense of the cultural environment they're entering. And sort of, honestly, it's sort of the silliness that is okay here. And the other to give them an idea of the working environment that they're entering and how we make decisions about our product.
0: That's a great way for you know, onboarding new people and, and establish that, that culture. Yeah, very interpersonal way to do that. So we talk about like relationship, point value for customers, for contributors, for employees. And the last group I kind of want to talk about is investors. Prefect has raised two subsequent Series A and Series B rounds uh, earlier this year from top-tier VC firms, such as Tiger Global and Bessemer Venture Partners, alongside some of the well-known strategic investors. What fundraising advice could you give for data founders who are seeking the right investors for the startups?
1: What a great question. One of our earliest investors who sadly passed away from COVID said when we were forming the company, he said, never take money from someone without knowing how they're going to expect it back. And I think that is a very good lesson to keep in mind. When someone puts money into a business, they are not going to walk away and just hang out. They have an expectation. They're not doing it out of the goodness of their heart. They have an objective. They want that objective to be met. And when you take money from someone, you have a responsibility to fulfill that objective. Companies have obligations. They have obligations to their investors, to their employees, and to their communities. And so I think that when you choose an investor, if you are fortunate enough to do so, You really want to make sure that you understand why they are giving you money and how they expect to receive it back. The reason is because you may be trading a short-term gain, which is to say cash, for a long-term problem, which is to say how you're going to get that cash back. And so alignment there is critical. And I've been fortunate, especially coming from the finance world, to maintain very strong relationships with many VCs. Therefore, it may be surprising that Prefect avoided institutional funding for our seed round and our A round. I really saw no advantage to bringing in institutions. We talked earlier in this conversation about companies have to make decisions when they have the least information possible. So if this key piece of advice I got was never take money from someone out and I give it back to them, it seems insane to commit to an institutional structured relationship as early as possible when the company is still figuring out what it's supposed to do what it does is it restricts decisions, it doesn't expand them. And so as prefect has grown and matured and our trajectory has become more clear and our adoption and our product, it's made more sense to align ourselves with institutions who have much more specific outcomes in mind for our company. whereas our earlier investors we focus much more on strategic individuals who were less concerned with the nature of how they would get their money back and actually more concerned with could they help us could they make an impact on our company in order to drive some larger outcome and so, that's one just key piece of advice that I received is really know how people expect to get that money back and choose your investors carefully. Just about everyone is nice when you meet them, especially when there's at least one-sided or mutual interest in doing business together. When things go poorly, that's when this matters. That's, and maybe I'm talking from my risk management perspective, but you can have the nicest person in the world on your cap table. And when you run into trouble, will they be there for you? All companies who have gone through the pandemic know the answer to that question. They know if their investors were there when they needed them. I can say that my investors were there beyond any real expectation that I had for what they would do. Uh, in particular, Patrick O'Shaughnessy is one of my closest friends, our, our lead investor and on prefix board with me. He was there to support us in a way that I don't think, well, I know for a fact many people would not have been, and our company will not forget that because that is when these relationships matter most. So know your investors, know how they're going to be there when you need them. Probably the most important advice I can
0: give anybody. I love how you go about, you know, finding the right people and then establish sort of that authentic connection between founders and the investors. So it's less so transactional, but more so like a win-win, right? We we both work together in downtime and uptime. So I think it is definitely very relevant for founders who are still in the process of figuring everything out, given the challenges of running startups operation in general.
1: Absolutely. It can be very tempting. Look, we're, at certain times, companies need cash, especially if it's you know following a model that many companies that you and I are familiar with, which is to raise money to grow, sort of a venture or pseudo-venture approach. I think it's a little bit sad that we have a culture that glorifies the selling of equity to investors as opposed to the success of the company itself. And so I think that while that can be an extremely validating moment. I, I know I can speak from experience, raising money from a company can be this incredible external validation of valuable, and it's really wonderful. But I think that young companies can sometimes pursue that, you know, like, I mean, look, Prefix. we've passed up some term sheets that probably would have printed a better number, but they were the wrong investor. So I, I think that this is a, just a really important idea for people to keep in mind.
0: Awesome. Yeah, and then you mentioned that these worldwide companies have a very good sense of how the growth is going to look like. In both of those fundraising launch blog posts, you identify the four key pillars that are central to prefix hyper-adoption within the data world, expansion, product, partnerships, and community. At the high level, what are some of the initiatives alongside these pillars that you are most excited about for the rest of 2021?
1: So all of them is <laughs> the simple answer. I think that I'm personally most excited about product announcements that we're going to make later this year. Maybe I'll come back and join you for another episode once we've made them, because there's going to be a lot to dig into. Um, Later this year, Prefect is going to make some pretty extraordinary product evolutions and product announcements. And we've been working very hard on that for more than a year to get to this point. Uh, Certainly, that's what I'm most excited about. I think that's sort of an unfair answer though, (laughs) because I didn't really answer your question. The other piece of it that I'm very excited about is the rate of expansion within our company. I tweeted the other day that whenever we do give someone a copy of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I've always written a little note to that person for their first day on the inside cover. Just like a, a little gesture that I guess I started doing for whatever reason to mark the occasion when Chris, our CTO, joined us, and I've just kept doing. And I wrote six of them yesterday. Uh, My hand hurt at the end of it. And it was this very visceral feeling of how the company is growing. I mean, I remember when there were six of us. And so to be sending out six of these notes to new people who are joining our company, and then to go into more interviews and more conversations about even more folks joining is very, very exciting to watch. And I hope that For Well, for me, that's very exciting to watch the company grow. I hope that for folks listening to this, that's exciting because it's going to put us in a position to just deliver a better product and a better experience as we see sort of prefect stature grow along with the company.
0: Yeah, that's a great feeling to see, you know, your product resonate with new people and kind of having more people joining the company is like joining your tribe and got to go back to that point, you know. Instilling that culture and, and educating more people about what the problem as well as you know, vision and values Similarly, is like something that you're very, very proud of. Absolutely. Um, at this point of the conversation, I want to move on to the final closing segment in which I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions and you're going to give the answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the broader data engineering community whose work you admire. <laughs>
1: these are rapid fire questions? Okay. Three people who, I'll tell you what, these are three people who, when I see tweets from them, I get really excited. Vicky Boykus, who is a phenomenal engineer. First of all, she's very funny, and I appreciate that. But she's also incredibly good about communicating what it's like to be in data, what it's like to be a data practitioner, the sort of the brutal reality of that, if you will, but in a very light and positive way. Uh, And she is sort of, you know, wicked smart, I believe. I have not had the pleasure of meeting her in person, but I subscribed to her newsletter for, for a very long time before she... Uh, pause that to focus on uh, some other things that she's working on. And I uh, just have learned so much from her. So she's number one. Another person who comes to mind, uh, Chris Riccamini, who I actually met, uh, we were building Airflow together, and he then became an investor and advisor in Prefect. Chris uh, sort of oversees all things data over at WePay and is one of the best data engineers I've ever met in my entire life. He knows everything about everything. He's plugged into everything that's going on in the world. And he's sort of a first stop for me whenever I Need to like get real smart about something real fast, uh, and he does these really great tech deep dives he started doing on Twitter recently. Uh, and he also has a book coming out on engineering and you know how to be an effective engineer and how to manage engineers. And I think that I think it's coming out in a couple of months. He's not paying me to say that. I just am really excited for it. And third, I would throw out Justin Gage, who's another investor advisor at ours who become friendly with Justin is a data scientist turned growth manager and sort of VC on the side. He's a very interesting person. And I think he really has found this sort of sweet spot between tech and business. He writes a newsletter called Technically, which is all about really easy to understand explanations of really complex businesses and data engineering concepts. Mm-hmm. So those are the three people that come to mind first.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for sharing those profiles and be sure to put them in the show notes. Number two, what is one book that you would recommend for data practitioners to cultivate an entrepreneurial mindset?
1: I think it would have to be Creativity Inc. that we, we talked about earlier. There's nothing in there that I think is necessarily true of data practitioners per se. I think actually one of the dangers is that data practitioners tend not to sort of gain experience to sort of just larger like business things. I remember in the early days of Prefect, someone giving me the advice, they said like to build a good startup, You can't just build the product. You also have to build the company. And so for someone, your question is about the entrepreneurial mindset. I think Creativity Inc. is certainly there. One of my other favorite books for entrepreneurs is Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, which is the story of Nike. Just a fascinating and unexpectedly twisty road to build that company.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Let's talk about the story and the visceral explanation of how the journey works always resonate more rather than the highs. And I love like, you know, how Phil you know, discussed like the, all the lows, 75% of the book is about like the low, which I think like that is the real below the live version of most startup operations, right? Finally, imagine that you send out a single tweet to all the early stage data engineers on Twitter. What could you tweet about?
1: This is the hardest question of all. <laughs> You've gathered from this conversation, I can't say anything concisely. And my Twitter is full of terrible jokes and, and puns. I think that I would, if I knew everyone was actually listening to me, which nobody ever does. Then I would advise that the data engineering world is following a path very similar to what the data science world went through a decade ago, which is tools are becoming barbelled. We have these degree of tools that are sort of of a no code paradigm. They're super easy to use, and they assume that nobody wants to do anything of interest, and everything is commodity and can be plugged in, and they're going down this like deeply, deeply computationally intense paradigm where you have to have a PhD just to use a tool. And I would advise people that common sense and also history from the data science world shows that neither of those will prevail. There will always be some art in doing something of interest and of edge, and it's not commodity. And there will always be tools that provide easy on-ramps to doing that, facilitating that. And I think that the most important thing for people to do is to do the personal version of what we talked about earlier with know what you make and know what you sell. And the personal version of that is, know what you can do that's a commodity effort where you're not really adding value, but it has to be done and know what you're doing that is expressing some like unique edge that you can develop and express and learn from the deeply computationally intense tools, learn what they're doing, learn how they're doing, learn why they're doing it, but find a way to practice that in a way that is easy and accessible and scalable, which is more in the vein of the sort of easier to use tools. And uh, maybe this is a more complicated version of saying no one to build and no one to buy but I believe that we watched the data science world go down this road in a fascinating way with software and developer tooling, yeah, five, 10 years ago. And we're just seeing it play out again in data engineering right now. And uh, be, be careful.
0: Yeah, I think that, that's a great way to conclude our conversation. So, Jeremiah, I really enjoyed talking with you today, kind of learning about your academic interest in econometrics, your work on, on risk management, your foray into learning, building system for time-series data, your involvement with Apache Airflow and lesson learned about open source governance, your interest into how creating prefects the whole story bi that journey, the open source framework, tactical discussion about the product offerings, business model, engineering challenges, as well as some of the valuable lessons learned on the day-to-day operation of running a startup ranging from finding contributors, coming up with a solid pricing model, hiring excellent talents, and then fundraising from the right investors. I'll be sure to include everything that we discussed today in the show notes so business can have a chance to take a look at some of the really novel, exciting work that Prefect is doing especially given some of the initiatives related to product and expansion that we discussed towards the end of our conversation. So Jeremiah, I really enjoyed our chat and I hope you have a great rest of your day.
1: Thank you, James. That's quite a list. I appreciate the opportunity to have such a huge and wide ranging conversation. don't think I realized we touched on quite so many things as you just made it clear that we did. So thank you very much for that
0: opportunity and the invitation to speak today. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website jameskaley.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now!